Hi everyone and welcome back to Ahead of the Curve. We're kicking off the new year with innovative insights and fresh outlooks for 2021 as our nation prepares for the recovery ahead. I'm Nigel Griswold, co-founder and CEO of Dynamo Metrics and your host. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Soji Edelaja, a professor in land policy at Michigan State University and respected public policy expert who has served as advisor to several key local, state, and national policy makers. Dr. Adelaja is the John A. Handa Distinguished Professor in Land Policy. Until April 2011, he served as Director of the Land Policy Institute, which he founded in 2006. In that capacity, he also served as the Director of a large W.K. Kellogg Foundation grant, which funded the Michigan Higher Education Land Policy Consortium, also known as MyHelp, and the People and Land Initiative. Prior to Coming to MSU in 2004, Dr. Elijah was at Rutgers University for 18 years, during which period he served as Executive Dean of Agriculture and Natural Resources, Dean of Cook College, Executive Director of the New Jersey Agricultural Experiment Station, Director of Rutgers Cooperative Extension, Professor and Chair of Agricultural Food and Resource Economics, Director of the Food Policy Institute, Director of the Food Innovation Center, and Director of the Eco Policy Center. Soji has received numerous awards for excellence in research, outreach, and policy leadership. Our conversation covers the history and goals of the Michigan State University Land Policy Institute, place-based economic development strategies and policies, the history of placemaking in Michigan, and the opportunities that lie ahead for changing and reinvesting in America's urban and rural places. And now my conversation with Soji. All right. Today on Ahead of the Curve, we have Dr. Soji Adelaja. Soji is the John A. Hanna Distinguished Professor in Land Policy at Michigan State University's Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics. Welcome to the show, Soji. It's great to have you on. It's good to be with you, Nigel. It's been a number of years since we spent time together. I'm glad to be on board. Yeah, it's really it's really great to have you. For our listeners, Soji and I have a long history together. We Early in my career, Soji kind of plucked me out from an undergrad graduate into a graduate student and, and helped, uh, helped finance my, my graduate research and really opened my eyes to how people and land relate to one another and helped me start thinking about how I, how I wanted to measure economic impact from programs, public sector program evaluation. So you really opened me up to that, Soji. I appreciate you for that. Oh, it's a pleasure. You're probably my brightest student ever. Oh, <laughs> um, oh Sometimes, but you were very bright. You were way ahead of your time in terms of your mental capacity. Hey, I, I appreciate you saying that. I appreciate you saying that. So I, I'm curious about, well, right out of the gate, like just some background on yourself and some of the work you know, I'm really, I, I want to dive into some of the work we did. Like, I'm, I'd love to focus on place-based economic development policies today and thinking about that in the context of, of the recession that we're in now. But really, I'm hoping that you can just, you know, paint a picture of the like the life of Dr. Elijah. Like, you've had such a, a rich history of work and, and everything you've done. And, and then maybe we can work towards the future of when, when we did work together and then its application to today. Absolutely. Absolutely. You may recall that I came to Michigan State University in 2004. Yep. I was coming in from New Jersey, from Rutgers University, 
And the charge to me was to build a research and outreach infrastructure that will address the land use, land policy, place challenges of the state of Michigan. You may recall that back then, uh, Michigan had lost a lot of people. The other industry was had almost gone under, um, if not for the injection of funds by the Obama administration. And the development community, as well as the municipal community and the state government were just really struggling. What do we do with Michigan? So the university came up with the idea that they would hire the Hannah professor, and I was the person that ended up hiring. So when I came here, I looked at the place and I said, what can I do? They were looking for somebody that would do a new, a different kind of science, um, but also somebody that would take it to the next level by building a strong outreach program on top of that. So that's what led to the founding of the Land Policy Institute and the Kellogg Foundation, I must admit, was very helpful in supporting uh, the program. And that was the impetus for the Land Policy Institute. Uh, we did a lot of interesting research. But even when I started that work, I had promised myself that I would only spend five to seven years doing that type of work and that I wanted to do to move on to more international work. So after about five to six years of the Land Policy Institute, that was when I took a leave of absence and went overseas, and I started to look at what I call real placemaking. Because you know, by that time, you would remember that uh, conflicts and terrorism had, be, had become major problems in many parts of the world. In fact, we're beginning to see some of that, you know, unrest. You remember that the Arab Spring, that all happened in 2011. So I thought that I should do more research that really focused on, you know, how do you prevent the problems that these places were facing, the instability problems? And if we can prevent those, how do you really build these places up? Um, and if they're torn down because of conflict, you know, how do you, what are the priorities for redeveloping these places? So I really moved my research into a different type of placemaking, which is really placemaking for communities that have been devastated. Now, you may remember that Michigan was somewhat devastated, not by conflict, but by the death of the auto industry, by globalization. Um, so the work I'm doing now is looking at conflict, looking at um, unrest, what, what causes it, at um, etiology, how does it take shape on the landscape? I look at issues like domestic and transnational terrorism. Uh, I look at issues such as um, land territorial terrorism, where the terrorists are making land claims. It's still land policy. Um, and then I also focus a lot of research on how do you rebuild these places back after the conflict? I won't be going and do the recognizance work to see what's been destroyed. Destroyed. There was so much destroyed. You build homes first. How do you get people to go back to communities that are turned down? And also, how do you begin to rebuild the schools, uh, to rebuild the roads, the water systems? So the work I do now is really more reconstruction, resettlement, and long-term redevelopment of places. And let me just end by saying that. Um, the incidence of conflict has grown tremendously around the globe, particularly conflict related to insurgency and so on. So more and more places 
really require the kind of thinking that we do in my work to help them either avert conflict or rebuild the economies after the conflict. Wow. That's really exciting work, Soji. So tell me a little more about that. I'm really hoping we can uh, we can circle back to domestic place-based policies in Michigan, things like that. But I'm this is really interesting work. And so placemaking it in a whole new way. You know, we're we're sitting in the luxuries of the United States. Yeah, we have we have some interesting uh, issues of potential domestic terrorism coming down the pike here. I mean, is there any application of what you're talking about to 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 those types of things we're facing now and in, in in our democracy and like we've been we've been facing? How would you how would you frame that? Most unrest comes out of what I call angst or pissed offness, <laughs> right? Yeah. So people, if they have jobs and they're doing well and their kids are fine, they don't take to the streets and start attacking, say, maybe Congress or something, you know? <laughs> sure. So what we're witnessing in the country is really an expression of perceived inequality or basically the lack of opportunities in many, many parts of America, particularly many rural areas of America. This was a manufacturing economy, and we really are not doing as much manufacturing as we used to do. Manufacturing as a percentage of our economy is now down to like 11%, if not even 10%. So technically speaking, there are a lot of people that have difficulty transitioning into the new economy that you and I have been talking about, if you see what I mean. They walk with their hands. They've never really been required to really very seriously use deep knowledge like you would, like um, some of the other people that we've worked with in the past would. Um, They're good, handy people. They can manufacture a car. They can do things of that nature. And unfortunately, the opportunities for them are more limited today. You may remember when you you and I were at the Land Policy Institute, We did a report for the Obama administration titled The Geography of Pain and the Geography of Opportunities. Nigel, I know you worked on it. I know Ben worked on it. And what we were trying to tell the Obama administration at the time was that, you know, we're focused a lot on urban areas, but there are many, many parts of of the country, particularly in the Midwest, where the bottom has fallen out from under, under them. And there needed to be strong programs to address those issues. So my key point is that unrest, pissed offness, terrorism, those things don't come out of thin air. They come out of real angst and concerns by people. The other thing is that when people want a solution to their problems and they can't get it out of the existing system, right, somehow, whether it's legitimate or not, that's when they tend to feel angst. The system had always kind of responded to them to raise their hands, like in the classroom, and the teacher says, yes, yes, yes. But <laughs> they felt that the things were not going well. And that usually, I mean, in a, in a deep recession, and the kind of structural change that we experience in this country with the new economy, it's not a surprise that many, many, many parts of the United States still feel this angst. And the job opportunities are not there. They're not like like they used to be, you know. The service economy has grown. The IT-driven economy has grown. Manufacturing is not, is not, has not grown. 
and many people feel comfortable working in manufacturing. So, mm-hmm. so the, one of the solutions is to solve the economic problems, the socioeconomic problems. And even if you do have either unrest or something, you still have to go back and address those issues because you can put in palliatives, but if you don't address the underlying factors, then you still have problems. So these issues, uh, I mean, what I'm working on now is quite relevant at home. You know, I spent a lot of time studying yeah. uh, how people become fragile and unstable and what damage they do and how can one address their issues and post-destruction, how can you help them rebuild their communities back? Right. So there's two there's two big movements unfolding right now. And the, the perceived inequality, or in our case with, say, the social equity movements, Black Lives Matter movements, and systemic racism that's being addressed right now also in the country, right? It's like another... Another movement is unfolding as all this recent, you know, violence in Congress and all these different pieces. We have another movement unfolding and that, that's much more peaceful in its ways. But I mean, that 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 says the point again. Right. You have this this inequality and <laughs> pissed offness, as you say. <laughs> and if the system isn't able to change in a way that that actually moves it in a direction of of fairness, then you know, you, you get these, these rises, right? Like speak to that same thing in terms of, of that, mo- how you view that, the, the social equity, Black Lives Matter movement and how kind of it's this moment where there's both sides of that happening, right? Well, you know, the, the white supremacy movement has been a dominant movement, but subtle, if you sort of mean. Yeah. Um, and the Black Lives Matter movement has been a hidden movement. I mean, almost every African-American you meet or talk to will tell you the horrendous things that happened to them, their families, and so on. But nobody talks about it, and their system really tries to and maybe eventually deal with it. But it all came to a head this year. So, you know, the fact that the Black Lives Matter movement surged and this other movement exists should be something that we should be concerned about. And the role of government is to condemn bad things and stand by good things, if you see what I mean, but not be drawn into the heart of the controversy itself, you know, if you see what I mean. And I think the government should never be polarized. And I think one of the things we've witnessed recently is the actual polarization of government. So we had two governments, basically, these are very strong forces. In most, most societies try to avoid this kinds of thing to kind of go down the middle and use education and empowerment to strengthen cohesion in society. But I think you can, you can certainly agree that over the last several years, what the country has done is to allow itself to be polarized along these two movements and several other movements too. And, um, it's something we're going to have to deal with. That's why you need reasonable people in leadership positions, right? Yeah. People that understand the issues, not people that would take advantage of the polarization. Um, so it's very, 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 very important that the next administration gets it right, you know, by recognizing that we have angst on the Black Lives Matter movement side and also definitely the white supremacy movement. 
In the rural poor, absolutely. And it, it's an interesting day. I really appreciate we're having this conversation. It's, it's Martin Luther King Day. Uh, happy, happy Martin Luther King Day. Well, thank uh, you. It, it, feels like, uh, it feels like an interesting inflection point in our country right now. Two days from now, the inauguration's coming. I really feel fortunate to be having a discussion with my old mentor about these big things. <laughs> it's really nice. One of the things, one of the contextualized pieces of this for me, Soji, is, is you mentioned new economy. And I think about what you just said around the idea of if you're placed within an economy, if you're positioned within an economy in a comfortable spot, then you're less likely to get angry, right? Because things are working in your favor. And we used to talk so much about the new economy and knowledge workers and how to get folks into that, that groove of the economy and what the old economy is and that, that transition that's occurred over the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, whatever you want to call. But maybe in your words, like help folks understand the way that you, your theories and your views around what the old economy in the United States and the world is and was and what the new economy is and how we're transitioning into what the future is. Well, the old economy is an old manufacturing economy. The American economy, remember, evolved from being agriculturally based and we got sophisticated and we moved strategically into manufacturing and manufacturing came to dominate the American economy. America's places, when they were built, were built on the back of manufacturing. So the nation was a connection of manufacturing places. We knew how to produce, whether it was cars or processed agricultural products, whatever, what America knew what to do was to produce stuff and manufacture stuff. And, and that was the old economy. People worked with their hands. The managers worked with their brains, you know, but people mostly used their basic technical knowledge to to do a good job, and they, they got paid well. I mean, Lansing was occupied mostly by, uh, in Detroit too, by people who work with their hands, and they got very well paid. They did very well. You could make as much as sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year by working with your hands. Unfortunately, the world of information technology, communications technology, started to change those dynamics. The value added by uh, knowledge workers increased significantly. Manufacturing, we lost some of our comparative advantage in manufacturing as manufacturing migrated to other parts of the world. America stepped to the next level, which was to to leverage the capabilities of uh, the creative class. And uh, the economy was booming. American economy didn't decline. It actually continued to grow. But the percentage of the economy that's attributable to agriculture and manufacturing at best today is probably 12% or 13%. So a lot of people got thrown out of opportunities. And for many of them, there's just nothing to go back to. It's hard to retrain them. And so the new economy is the, the economy that's IT-based. I mean, you can look at all the stuff we do now. It used to be that 20 years ago, you know, you go to a bank, for example, with tellers all over the place, right? These days, you know, I haven't been to a bank in like nine months, you know, <laughs> online. That displaces people, you know, who the doorman, the cleaner, 
all kinds of people. And so that's where we, 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 we find ourselves. The economy is still booming, but the balance of the economy, people who don't have much education or don't have the requisite skills to operate in that high-service, highly technical economy, they're left behind. The economy is still growing. We're growing billion years like crazy, more than we ever did, you know, and many of them coming out of IT, but it is not inclusive growth. Right. So from a big picture perspective, would you would you see us well, Michigan as a as a microcosm within that, but like would you still see us in like a, a broader macro transition? I mean, that's is is that where we're at? There's still like there's still generations of folks alive that, you know, remember the good old days of when that was happening, right? And yeah, Michigan was one of the hardest hit places because we were the, probably the most steeped state in manufacturing. We have our, the union was born here. We prided ourselves in making cars uh, way before even Japanese cars or, or Korean cars could even be be purchased, let alone relied on, you know. So Michigan fell the, the brunt of it. But you know, some of the work we did together on placemaking really was based on this notion that because Michigan's past was defined by manufacturing does not mean that Michigan cannot be a leader in transitioning to the new knowledge-driven economy. We have many of the requisite underlying factors here in the state of Michigan. The new economy is driven by accumulation of knowledge. We have strong, very representative knowledge institutions in the state. University of Michigan is one of the leading universities in the nation, and Michigan State University is one of the leading land-grant universities in the nation. We still got Western, we got Eastern, we got Northern Michigan. We got good schools in the state, generally speaking, you know. We got auto industry, which if you look at the auto industry is one that produces automobiles, but has the capacity to produce a whole bunch of other things. Then you say that we have knowledge workers in the state, technicians, engineers, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So we have yeah. that. What we were trying to do was to make sure that Michigan positioned itself to be competitive for talent, not to lose its own existing talent, if you see what I mean, by putting in place some of these place-making strategies. We believe that people went to places that had assets that are attractive to knowledge, and that's what place-making is all about. That's That was our thinking at the time. And so we encourage communities to start to think about, you know, what critical strategic assets they need to place in to make themselves more attractive to both innovators, companies, entrepreneurs, and, and others. So that's what placemaking, our placemaking effort was uh, focused sure. on. Michigan is well positioned. We've got the natural resource base. That is probably the most powerful. Uh, in this kind of economy, people want to live near amenities. Michigan has natural amenities. Um, I mean, these are valuable. You did some of that research too yourself, you know, that shows that amenities are very valuable. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, so one of the pieces, there's a couple of pieces from what you just said that I picked out that I, that I want to touch on specifically. And there's, 
the, the mindset piece is most interesting to me because when we first started doing work together, I remember there was an uphill battle for you in terms of working with folks at state, state government and different levels of government where to actually believe that investing in a sense of place in your downtown corridor is important, right? And, and moving policy in that direction, like the, you know, the policy apparatus at the state level in Michigan was thinking, and maybe at the county levels or different regional levels or just the policy space in the state of Michigan was was not necessarily ripe for moving investment towards downtown corridors to draw in talent and to to invest in those types of of economic development policies. And so maybe I don't know if you have a story or if you have specific things you remember from your uphill battle of the mindset piece in the state of Michigan when you were when you were putting uh, these thoughts onto the street <laughs> in the mid 2000s. But uh, in Michigan, just wanted solutions. Yeah, they wanted a job. They were not eager to get involved in the intellectual discourse that we get into. Even though we had the answers, we understood why the economy of Michigan was struggling. But if we can't explain it to them and to the lawmakers that represent them, then it's a waste of time, right? Yes. So the one thing that was very positive for Michigan was that at the time we had a, a governor that not only was very smart, but she understood the problem because she herself was trying to communicate with the people of Michigan and people had difficulty understanding what she was saying she had floated the idea of cool cities. And mm-hmm. I, we were like, what are you talking about? Cities aren't cool, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so I was lucky that I ran into her very early in my stay here and we were talking. She was saying exactly the same thing I was saying. She's like, wow. She said, there's another person in this state like you. I need <laughs> to go visit with you. I want to find out what you're doing. And I think we got started there. We mapped out a strategy that basically says that our message is not for the intellectual. Our message is for people, the average person in the state, if you see what I mean. So we went back. And this is this is Governor Jennifer Granholm. Right? We went back, and all the brilliant research ideas that we thought we had, we jettisoned them, and we said, let's do the basic to inform people. When I heard, for example, about your thesis, I was so excited. I mean, the notion that you can actually show people in urban areas that if you take away the blight, you can actually enhance their property values, right? Yes. Right? I mean, that's that's no-brainer in terms of people will buy into it, you know. You need to make the science of economic development simple for people and make people at least at least understand that this is not GWE's academic trash, but this is really basic fundamental stuff that they could understand. Um, So we rolled out a retinue of research projects. I knew that academics alone could not tackle those kinds of research projects, so we came up with grant programs to pay faculty up with graduate students and undergrad students, if you see what I mean. Because some of the great ideas will come from the undergrad students. We also had grants that will pay people up with communities, faculty up with communities so they can work on real-life problems. And we had about 120 projects going. We actually knew research for Michigan, you know. And then having done all that research, we also created this legislative education program 
where every couple of weeks we went to the legislature, we served them lunch, we did a seminar, we had them co-host us, the Republicans and the Democrats, and they would listen to our presentations. Pretty soon the science that had become, I mean, acceptable and reasonable. So that's what we did. We also spent yeah. with them across Michigan. We insisted that we put resources into communities across Michigan. So there's a community that was trying to, to was seeking to try one of our ideas. We funded them to do it. That's how LEAP came into existence, Lance McEnroe Carrier Partnership. We supported uh, prosperity projects in Traverse City. Even in Detroit, you know, we did the Marshall Plan for Detroit. And we went to Grand Rapids, did the same thing. We did a project titled, Can Small Towns Be Cool? We <laughs> sort of mean. Yeah. It was a show that they could be cool too and benefit from it. And so it was, uh, I mean, this this is this is what we did. And uh, the timing was perfect. And uh, I think it made a difference in Michigan, which is why I'm so fascinated by the research that I, I hear that you're doing now. This is the arc of the conversation here, Soji. And I think that it ties back very specifically into the the COVID recession recovery. And I'm hoping to get there. So what, what happened, like the chickens have come home to roost, right? So the work that you and the team did that you were surrounded by with the legislature in the late 2000s, they bit down. Like Governor Granholm bit down, Governor Snyder bit down on it after her, and and drove investment towards uh, specifically place-based economic development investment towards Michigan's downtown areas. And yeah, and so we, you know, Dynamo has recently done work with the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. We're finishing some research now that identifies, you know, over, you know, it's something like 11 years, $1.1 billion of investment from MEDC uh, brought you know, over $4 billion of investment from the private sector into Michigan's downtown corridors, primary, secondary, tertiary corridors. And we're, and we're finding positive effects on occupancy rates, on property value impacts as a result of these investments. And so, I mean, we can actually quantify the positive impact on Michigan's economy from these investments. And they're there. They're real. And so, I mean, I just I just want to put that in your world and get your thoughts on long-term sustained placemaking investments and that we're actually starting to see real evidence of how it's shifting the economy and has shifted the economy in Michigan. I mean, it's just a real validation of all that early work from you. And, and uh, I'm excited to talk to you about it. One of the first things I noticed when I moved to Michigan was there was not much regard for its cities from a state, state policy perspective. There wasn't a concerted program to change the plight of cities. Coming from back is I realized that cities were the heart of a metro area, right? Mm-hmm. Metro areas were the anchors of a state economy. Economics of places just kind of don't go by boundaries. You know, they go by. It's like a human being has a heart and they've got other organs that are that are playing their roles. If you see what I mean. You, I don't know of a state in the country that has a dead city or a dysfunctional city or has dysfunctional cities and still thrives. It's not possible. So one of the first things we needed to do was to to show that investing in our cities benefited both the cities and urban and, and suburban areas. Are you following me? 
Yeah, that is the heart of great placement. And then what kind of investments do you make? Recognizing the new economy, the investments have to be catalytic in the sense that they have to attract the people that are precursors to economic development. A brain surgeon that moves to Michigan could potentially create 60 jobs, right? Testing, laboratory work, nurses, and so on and so forth. And the average person that, is, that works with their hands, you know, might not even create a job. You know, if you see what I mean. So we needed to attract knowledge workers and balance the, you know, Michigan had lost a lot of its knowledge workers. We need to balance knowledge workers versus everybody else. We need to, to we needed to attract those that were net economic opportunity generators in order to create opportunities for people that are not so fortunate and that are not knowledge workers. So um, that was the impetus. And then the question is, can government just fold it, its arms and say, well, yeah, we need to attract knowledge workers. Is there something government should be doing, which was the essence of the work on placemaking? And our conclusion was that the government should be doing catalytic investments. We believe that um, collateral investments will come from the communities themselves. Basically, what you're doing is you de-risking or de-costing the cost of placemaking investments. And if you did that, the new economy drivers, knowledge workers, would certainly be attracted to the community and they will come. And we saw this across the state. I think the research you've done has just basically gone to provide numbers behind what we knew, what we used to suspect, and what we knew later. And um, but we couldn't we could prove it, kind of, based on looking across the country, but we never had empirical evidence in Michigan. And I think the importance of the work you're describing to me is that we now have empirical evidence that shows that placemaking investments have spillover and multiplier benefits. That's right. And so, yeah, the, what we're seeing is that we're seeing occupancy rates near place-based investments increase, both commercial and residential. We're seeing property values, both commercial and residential, increase as well near place-based economic development investments. And so what that what that says to me is there's, um, you know, there's increased demand at the end of the day, right? Like if if there people want to have their business more in a commercial area, then you know you're going to run out of commercial space and the prices are going to go up. If people want to live near a downtown more, then the the space to live downtown is going to run out and the prices are going to go up, or there's going to be new development. And, and, and that's a positive effect, right? Well, I will think it was, if you build it, they will come. And I think the paradigm now is if you make place-making investments, they will come. <laughs> <laughs> that's really sure. the, But I think the magic of all of this is um, with cities needing to revitalize themselves and think out of the box and figure out how to, to deal with the challenges of the new economy, what kinds of investments make sense? Much of the investments that our cities are used to are investments in what we call gray infrastructure. We'll just build that road. We'll fix that bridge. We're finding from our research, and we found from our research, and so of your research too, because we're very much part of this whole process, that, for example, trails have economic value. They attract people. They attract knowledge workers, if you see what I mean. Uh, water, a little lake, man-made lake, um, would be attractive. The sidewalks, right? <laughs> sure. you know, value. We did a lot of that research. Um, one of the studies we did was look at 
the land sizes and the features of homes and communities that generated the, the best tax base for a community. I don't know if you remember those studies, you know. Um, yeah. And they all point toward green infrastructure, place-making investments, things of that nature. So I think your study is very timely. I think um, what has to be done is your client has to take this and use it as as a, as a, as the basis for making cons, uh, um, convincing arguments to policymakers. Let's say, you see, you make the investment and it worked, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the numbers are because you haven't told me, but <laughs> it's interesting to convert it to to compare to the returns on other types of investments that cities make. And that would be an interesting study, actually, for you guys to do if somebody funds it. You know, what are yeah. the returns to alternative investments that are made that a city could make? You know, crime fighting, things of that nature, and then you compare those to to place making. You know, it'll be interesting. I would be interested in working with you on that. <laughs> I mean, this is okay. So yeah, so we're on a good thread here that I'm really curious your your thoughts on because. So I feel like there's this unique moment in Michigan. You have, you're mentioning natural resource amenities. Like there's, there's a trend that, you know, most folks know about that, that pay attention to the moving and shaking of, of, of the knowledge workers of, of the United States and, you know, of the world where, you know, COVID has hit and it's been a pretty bad pandemic. We're still in the thick of it. And a lot of folks that have the wherewithal, the resources to move, have either temporarily or potentially permanently moved um, to small towns, to areas where there's more space, basically, right? But they they still need internet connections, right? And so, you know, I'm reading these things in the Wall Street Journal and just like throws up my light bulbs of the work we did where you see small town, you see knowledge workers in small towns. And, and it makes me say, hey, well, you know, the MEDC made the right moves because all our downtowns are really cool right now. <laughs> now. If they can attract these knowledge workers, can we make it stick? Right? Well, two things are going on. One is a net effect of Michigan's place-based strategies on the flow of people into the state. Yes. My is, and I'm hunting for those numbers now, the net on net the pandemic brought more people to Michigan as people realized that they can work anywhere. Where do we want to be? I want to be in a place that's kind of laid back and fun, access to water, I can do my boating and so on. I had a number of people that I had worked with in the past that lived in California that just called me and said, so do you wear Michigan? I said, what the heck are you doing in Michigan? (laughs) I don't have the numbers but I can point you in the direction of some useful data. Moving companies oftentimes provide information on net moving. You know, you know when people move out of state, they kind of move everything, right? And mm-hmm. then move in state. So look at those numbers, and I think you'll find that Michigan is much would, would benefit from the pandemic. But then the other part you're talking about is the is the balance between urban suburban, rural areas, and small towns. The agglomeration economies uh, favor investing in urban areas because you get the, you got much bigger bank for your buck, you're dealing with a lot of people. But 
under COVID, people have a may have more interest in living in suburban areas, especially with the fact they don't they don't have to live near cities anymore. You don't have to commute to cities, you know. But the net effect on Michigan is going to depend on how Michigan handles its place-making investments, if you sort of mean. Yes. I think if we abandon place-making projects in the small communities, we're going to see the case where people don't even come to Michigan at all because they do want to come to the small communities. Some of them want to come to urban areas. If you don't give them the small community option, they will not come. I don't think these people want to come to rural areas without strong connectivity, right, in terms of broadband and so on. And then the second thing is that if Michigan really wants to be uh, a leader in attracting knowledge workers, then you've got to think about some of this new economy infrastructure. Again, the trails, the um, the internet, the uh, all of those things. Um, even, you know, we need to take the lead in autonomous vehicles, you know. I mean, these are things that are coming down the pike, you know. People are not going to be wanting to zip all over the place, you know. Um, and be stressed. They want to get into their cars and have their cars drive them. But we need to make the investments first, you know. I mean, in the switches and so on and so forth. And we're in auto state, so we certainly should embrace it. So, in conclusion, to answer your question, I think that what Michigan does with those place based investments would determine the impact of the, of the pandemic. You know, sprawl pretty much came to a halt in Michigan. You remember when we first started working together, we were so concerned about sprawl, right? Yeah, I remember. Because of the place-making investments, sprawl actually, I'm sorry, that's that's my belief. Uh, we actually ran out of work is what happened to us at the <laughs> Policy Institute. We were big sprawl <laughs> advocates, you know. And, uh, and all of a sudden, Michigan just started to experience violence growth. The city started to do better, you know. And the suburbs didn't have any problem with that, you know. In the rural areas, we did some work on ag viability and farmland preservation that made it possible for those communities also to get a benefit. So it's about creating a balance for everybody, right? So what Michigan has to do is to think very strategically about the balance that it needs to bring to bear in dealing with the effect of COVID. Otherwise, we stand to lose possibly a lot if we don't make the state attractive, because people are going to move, make the state attractive, and then make the places we want to thrive in whatever density we want, make those places attractive too. I think I think that's right on, Soji. I mean, we have, and we also have affordability working for us major when it comes to folks coming from the coasts, right? Like, Absolutely. You can get a lot more house for... $400,000 or something, or even $150,000 in Michigan, as opposed to, you know, it's 3 million bucks in Berkeley, you know, for something that's. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, it's interesting too, because once people move here, it's hard to move out. <laughs> you, know? Because, you know, I moved here from New Jersey, you know, bought a home here for about half of what my home was in Jersey. Those high prices in Jersey and those high taxes. I just can't fathom them anymore. You know, <laughs> friends tell me that their houses now cost $1.5 million. You know, houses that they bought for 400000 in a short period of time, we're talking 15, 20 years. Right. And the taxes are like 20000 17000 a year. And I complain about $4,000 so a year in taxes. Yeah. So I think Michigan actually 
is an affordable state. I think that, but we can we can we can attract affordable people that are also knowledge workers because they still have to create jobs for the people who have to work with their hands. If you see what I mean, sure. Uh, we need to the, the mix of who lives in Michigan is very key. Okay, absolutely. The um, and, and and something I'm hoping we can do a little bit with the time we have is. I'd like to think outside of Michigan for a second. And something that I learned during this, this research with the, with the Economic Development Corporation with the state is part of the work I had to do is I had to look outside, look outside of Michigan to see if there was other states that were doing similar approaches to economic development investment. And so I did my homework. I did all my research. And there was a total of 3% of all economic development programming nationwide that was anywhere close to what the state of Michigan was putting way more resources into, which is to say that it's novel. Like these place-based strategies for actually investing in, in facade and building specific and downtown corridors, targeting resources into those areas instead of directly investing in businesses or giving tax incentives directly. The other way, where we're actually investing in the buildings and drawing in those businesses, right? Like that's the approach of Michigan. And so I'm curious, like we're not seeing that in other states. And, and as, a, as, a, as a strategy at a state level, I'm curious your thoughts on like economic development policy overarching, right? Um, so take that into context, what I just said, like not really anybody else is doing it, right? But then we have major federal resources that are probably going to flow during the recovery to state and local government. And we're probably going to get an infrastructure bill. And I'm just thinking around like the idea of coordinated investment, (laughs) coordinated economic development investment that ties to infrastructure investment that thinks in this way. And in specifically the Midwest, I feel like there's this chance to completely rebuild the Midwest, (laughs) but I'm curious, like, those dot connects I just did. I'm curious how you think about how you would think about answering. Your mind has always been more advanced than most people, including mine. So I'm not going oh, to refer no. to one of the things <laughs> I'm talking to is because you're, ex, you're an extremely cerebral and out of the box thinker, you know, and that's certainly something I, I remember about you. Okay, so when I first came to Michigan, one of the challenges that our policymakers faced was the standard economic development strategies that were pursued historically were no longer working, right? Yes. And one of the things that the governor at the time said said to me was that all the academic stuff that faculty were doing related to traditional economic development, which wasn't working for Michigan, so she felt that our academics were not relevant, right, in the area of uh, state revitalization, state redevelopment, urban revitalization, and so on and so forth. Yes. So Michigan invented or developed its own approach to economic development, which was place-based, recognizing that we have place assets, right? Yes. So place-making became, became central. Now, one of the things I really like about the study that you've just completed is that you – even though people like Richard Florida have done studies that have shown how knowledge workers move, but you've taken it to the to the what we call the outcome variables. You know, yeah. uh, occupancy is key. If you build it, where they come, 
if you build placemaking, would they come? And then are they willing to pay more for it? If you see what I mean? Property values at sale time increases, what I think I heard you say. That's our right. places were a place based investment. So to make the point I'm trying to make is that Michigan chose placemaking because it was a strategy that was appropriate for development. We're well ahead because we built a brain trust in Michigan around placemaking, right? We had a whole institute whose uh, primary work was placemaking science. And we did the outreach. We helped communities. We built infrastructure like LEAP. We helped places. We gave them grants, you know. So Michigan did this, and it's getting the returns, you know, for it. Now, I wanted to also highlight the fact that we also influenced Washington because Washington also came up with this White House policy on place-based strategies. Remember that? Google it. White House policy on place-based strategies. The federal government understood it, but, of course, the Obama administration had a limited period left in office, you know. They tried to promote programs that were centered around, you know, leveraging place, uh, place assets and so on and so forth. But of course, the term of that administration right now. I think the current administration is, um, the new administration is going to be rethinking again how to do place-based work, but it's going to be thinking about urban areas and rural areas also. So one of the areas where I see a great opportunity is, you know, to actually do work and help the government is what does placemaking mean in rural areas? What does placemaking mean in small towns? What does placemaking mean in metropolitan key cities? And But this area work is going to be very, very important. But Michigan was innovative, and we were in a recession for 10 years prior to the North American recession, right? Yeah. But we were one of the first states to actually get out of the recession. You know that, <laughs> right? Yeah. We, had a, we had a framework and a basis in the state uh, to do it, and the MEDC was innovative. Oh, man, they were innovative. Remember the work on TIDE, Talent, Innovation, Diversity, and Entrepreneurship or Education, something like that? Uh, yeah. They also supported us to do. Uh, it was the basis for actually identifying what to invest in in multiple places. So um, I think we have a very innovative economic development organization in Michigan, but they were forced to, to, to be because the economy was in shambles and they had to drive the revitalization of the state. So we have some of the best minds in the state, sorry, in the country, here in Michigan. And I hope that we, I'm sorry, I'm a Michigander. I hope we're a little bit, we're a little ahead of the other states, you know? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think we're pretty well positioned given that we're, you know, 11, 12 years deep into these types of investments. And and hopefully going forward, we, we're leaning into them right now because we want to hold the we want to hold the line right during a recession. We have we have commercial corridors that are pretty, pretty emptied out right now in yeah. a lot of the state from this recession. Or to do, but we want to be at the forefront, have the best knowledge have the best strategies and that's the only way that Michigan can can remain at the at the top in terms of innovation. We need to be growing faster economically than other states. Yeah, and it, I'm throwing out some of these these thinkings I've been doing given what we found through the MEDC research and just our, our research of the past where we we identified rehabilitation and, and uh, demolition as a as a posit when you did those strategically how they would protect 
property values in neighborhoods, right? And what I've been thinking about is across the Midwest, Eastern Seaboard, some of the South, there's been a lot of, you know, blight as a result of, you know, the, the old economy kind of moving out and the newer, newer economy moving in. A lot of people moved out of places, leaving vacant commercial, a lot of it, leaving uh, vacant and abandoned residential, a lot of it, right? There's... There's a good chunk of empty housing and empty commercial and empty industrial across this country, right? Like that's a fact, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. And so, so that's, so that's like, let's call that fact, right? And sit that on the side. So now we have potentially, it, it looks good. I mean, we've been pent up demand for an infrastructure bill for, you know, at least half a decade, decade, right? To reinvest in our roads and our bridges and our pipes and all the things like that. It's, I feel like the time is right. I mean, this is my hypothesis, but I think the time is right. It's going to help create a lot of jobs that have been lost and, um, and really help our economy in the, in the medium term to get yeah. out of this. And uh, those resources wisely in the state, to the extent to which we have influence on how they're spent. That's just it. Wisely to further our place making and place based objectives because the payoff is, uh, it's quite significant. We can't do what other states are doing by doing traditional attraction strategies and things like that. We need to do it better. And again, because we have some of the, the very unique assets here in Michigan. So you're right. You know, there'll be transportation dollars. There'll be rural development dollars. Mm -hmm. Health capacity building dollars. The question is, do we slap them all over the landscape like and hope they stick like <laughs> other places do? Or do we have a targeted strategy of deciding where those investments will go? And I think that's what we'll say. But place making is really about targeting your resources. That's right. That's really about yes. That's right. And I think, and I think this is where this is where this this idea that I want to throw out and see your thought on is. So we have we have uh, social equity movements um, unfolding in the country in our urban areas and in many of our. Our rural areas, there's there's a lot of the rural poor is is a real thing in this country, and if we identify these these older commercial corridors in small towns, but also in traditionally disinvested areas of urban areas, mm -hmm. and actually invest, there, there's an opportunity to create ownership because a lot of that property is abandoned. Mm -hmm. Tools like land banks could actually deed property into new ownership environments while new infrastructure is being built alongside them. So if, if you, you could identify these areas while investing in infrastructure and transferring ownership of areas that have currently no value into valuable areas at the margin. Well, keep in mind that a large number, I'm predicting that a large number of commercial square footage will be coming into vacancy soon, right? Yeah. Yeah. Simply because even before COVID, things like malls and so on and so forth, we're doing stuff online. The Amazon effect is real, you know? Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah, that's a big one. American purchases, including food. And then after the pandemic, I think most people are just going to be more reliant on using the internet for a lot of things that they do. I don't think offices and companies will have that many uh, space, that much space for employees to come in, and like we used to. I think that uh, 
we're going to be very selective on who works at base, at the office, right? What yeah. that means is that this is an opportunity for the state of Michigan to take place making to the next level, right? That's right. That's because right. We need to think in terms of what those assets are and what placemaking things we can do to make those assets valuable, you know, because the, the implications for the tax base are pretty significant, if you see what I mean. Um, if we take some of the strategies we used in placemaking and we use it for thinking about how we placemake in this existing agglomeration places, this hanging out places, the malls and the uh, and so on and so forth. I think that's really key to the future uh, success of Michigan, particularly the, the holding of property tax revenues. Because I can't see too many of these commercial properties going um, down the drain without it affecting the, the performance of municipalities and cities. That's right. And I mean, the, dy the dynamo pitch in that environment is that if you want to understand at a granular level how to be strategic, uh, with your dollars and understand the outcome of your investments, you need to know the environments where you're putting the dollars. And the only way, the only way to get there is to have property level time series data in a way that you can actually use it, right? Absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. And I'm very concerned about the plight of downtowns with people looking to move to the suburbs. I think we really need to be thinking about what kind, what's the next phase next stage, the place-based strategies that we want to use so the cities can hold their own while, so we, while suburbs and rural areas also hold their own. What we want in Michigan is not to poach on each other, where cities poach on rural areas, areas poach on. What we want to do is to make sure that Michigan gets a net increase out of all of this stuff coming. I I think we're. I think. I think what we've done for the last eleven years has perfectly positioned us for that. Absolutely, and then we can decide strategically how the net gain can be distributed across the state based on our sense of what the state ought to be. That whole place making concept of Michigan. You know, what is Michigan? What do people think about when they think about Michigan? What is attractive about Michigan? You know, what are the players of Michigan? We need to make the investment so that the mission of our dream then becomes the outcome of this, what I think would be great opportunities coming to change American places. That's right. And I and in, in reinvesting and doubling down on placemaking, I believe is what's going to keep that sticky and keep those folks here once they come. <laughs> right. Oh, and not just that, I think getting the powers that be, the people that are making decisions to understand it also. To understand it and support those those concepts, you know, because at a time when people are suffering, it's a very difficult time to to sell place making unless people bought into to place making. You understand? Mm -hmm. I do. I do. So it's very important. With all the research you've done that I've done, this is the time to help decision makers really understand that we do have the science on the GERD, Michigan's long term transformation, and that feature is very bright, and they need to know that we need to help Michigan make the choice between its three kinds of places, if you see what I mean, so that we can, on the net, attract people to Michigan that will add economic value to Michigan. I love it. I, can, I think I'm going to leave it lit there, Soji. You're, you're on it, man. I really appreciate, really appreciate all your words and um, coming on the podcast today. 
Is there is there anything else that you wanna you wanna say for you? We 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 sign off here. One thing I'd like to see more of is a placemaking in the context of communities. We tend to depersonalize placemaking and we talk about corridors and all that stuff. But community identity, because people live in communities, right? Yes. I'd like to see more work. Maybe your company can drive it on placemaking implications for communities. I mean, do communities where placemaking hurt a cord, right? And I know you've done that broadly in terms of cities, but going down to parcels within the cities now, do communities placemaking, aggressive placemaking as a cord, are those cities, are those communities doing better? In terms of other outcomes, not just occupancy, so but in terms of employment also, and several other things, if you show what I mean, like 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 uh, th- things like community group education, um, quality of lifestyle. Exactly. Got it. Yeah, I mean that's that is a huge piece, right? That gets down into the granularity. Besides the broad economic performance indicators, what does it mean to people in their lives? Absolutely. If I into a place made community, what does that do to my prospects? Mm-hmm. I know I can sell my property at a higher value better than if I don't, don't go into that community, right? I know that we're not going to deal with a lot of vacancy and blight, you know, uh, if I do consider moving into this kind of community. And then the, the next question is, what is in it for me, my jobs, opportunities? Do schools improve? These are some of the things you may want to tell your sponsors to look at. Do schools improve in those communities? You know, and I can think of the mechanisms whereby schools will improve, you know, because of the quality of the people that come. But we need to ask all those questions to help. I love that. Yeah, like, does a vibrant local food network increase educational outputs? Yeah. <laughs> ultimate of placemaking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I love it. I appreciate it. That's really good. Great to talk to you. Great to have you on, Soji. Always always a pleasure. Tremendous pleasure. So impressed with what, what you're doing and what you've moved on to do since you were in graduate school. And I wish you needs it, by the way. Quite <laughs> yeah. Feel It feels like having family on the podcast. It's nice to have you, Soji. I really appreciate it. Yes, yes, a pleasure. All right, then. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ahead of the Curve, and special thanks to Soji for joining us today. In our next episode, we'll be joined by Ben Cullender, Economic Development Director for Salt Lake City, Utah.